Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts, chapter 6, for our installation service sermon. We are going to be doing the Gospel of Luke, probably starting in a month or so. Uh, I've already done Acts before for Bible study, but you can't do Luke 1 without doing Luke 2. So uh, we'll probably do Acts again after we get through Luke. But Luke will take us until the second coming of Christ to get through, so uh, we might not even get there, but uh, maybe. But if not, we'll do Luke and then Acts. So, but Acts 6, uh, we'll look at the entire chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose uh, some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and uh, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and changed the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we ask that today in our midst that you would send forth your spirit to help us to better understand what your word says as it pertains to the church of Christ as it pertains to what the officers are and what it means. We know that we need much wisdom from on high to understand these things. We need uh, the spirit to help us to discern these things that are of a spiritual nature. And so we pray that as we consider your church and uh, consider the needs of the church and consider the officers of the church, we pray that it would be a time of edification for your people, that you would build us up, that you'd uplift us in the things of God. And that there are any here today who do not know you, that you would save them, that you would give them new life, that they would see their wickedness, but that they would flee to Christ by faith and in him find everlasting life. We are thankful we get to come and consider uh, how you still provide for your church. Even now, thank you, Christ, as the one who's at the right hand of God the Father, you still speak to us 
and you speak to us in your word. You still help us have the mind of Christ, even as your church votes on important things. So thank you for your nearness. Thank you for the mind of Christ. Thank you for the mind of Christ uh, with respect to Bill and Mr. Ky uh, Mr. Kyvenoven and bringing him in. And we are thankful for this. And we pray that he would be encouraged, that he would be uplifted, uh, that the brethren would be encouraged and uplifted, that the current deacons would be encouraged and uplifted, and that we would hear the charges that we need to hear as we consider uh, the way in which you provide for your church. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, one of my favorite verses is in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, as Luke recounts all that he used to say, all that he said in that first volume in Luke 1. He says, I recorded for you all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And there is an implication. Though Jesus has been raised from the dead, though Jesus in his human nature has ascended into heaven, he is still doing and he is still teaching. And he still does and he still teaches by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church and Christ is still building the body, which is the church. And he does so by way of officers. One way in which he encourages and helps the church advance is by way of the offices of the local church, namely elder and deacon. And so in Acts chapter 6, we see the first appointment of deacons and it comes about because of a great problem there are more people and we're in the section in the book of acts where we see this expansion if you could give us the, the or we could see the thesis statement of the book of acts it's acts 1 8 and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem in judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth and so the whole book of acts really flows in this way we see the gospel going forth in jerusalem then it spreads to Judea, then it spreads to Samaria, and it goes to the ends of the earth, which is what we see in chapter 19, where the Spirit falls at Ephesus. So we're in that section that deals with the expansion into Judea, that expansion into Samaria. We deal with this idea of kingdom expansion, but really it starts with the Greek speakers in Jerusalem. So the problem is clear, but it's a good problem. There's more people when there's more people, there's going to be more problems because the people of God are sinners. The people of God have many needs that aren't necessarily connected to sin. And so there's going to be more people. There's going to be more needs. And so the need then is that God would raise up officers in his church. In this case, we see faithful men who are appointed as deacons at the church in Jerusalem. We see in Acts 6 how the church is growing how the church is advancing, but we see it's advancing that includes other nations. It includes Jews, but Jews who were born in other countries. So as it grows, the need grows. But also as it grows, persecution increases as well. So there is that side-by-side -side reality of the blessedness of growing, the blessedness of deacons, but also the reality that there's going to be persecution in the church of Christ. And so we will look at all 15 verses this morning, and we'll do so under two headings. The first heading is going to be the appointment of deacons in verses 1 through 7. Then secondly, we're going to see the arrest of Stephen in verses 8 through 15. So the appointment of deacons, verses 1 through 7. Then we're going to see the arrest of Stephen in verses 8 
through 15. So two A's, let's first look at the appointment of deacons in verses 1 through 7. And so we see the need proper in verses 1 through 4. It starts with a good report. Verse 1, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So there's this good thing. The church is growing. The church is growing despite persecution. We just saw the apostles beaten in Acts chapter 5, but they're going to continue to obey God rather than man. They're going to continue in the things of God, continue with respect to the church and what her function is and what she ought to do. And so it's, they're growing, they're, they're growing in number. And remember, Jerusalem is the only church at this time, so if you want to go to church, you have to move to Jerusalem. That's exactly what happens. Many have moved to Jerusalem. Many have moved to the main hub because that is the only church that there is. And certainly we'll see the advancement and the expansion in the book of Acts, but right now that is the place to be, and God is causing it to grow. But as it grows, as there are those who came for Pentecost, those who came from other parts of the empire, those who were Greek-speaking Jews, then they have to come now to the, the church in Jerusalem. Problems arise. And so there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So the Hebrews are the Jewish-speaking Jews, and the Greeks are the, or the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora. After Israel was sent into captivity, after they went into captivity by way of Babylon, we see they're then spread throughout many parts of the empire. And so now many have come to Jerusalem, and so now there's the Greek-speaking ones and the Aramaic, Hebrew-speaking ones as well. And so the problem is the Hellenists... Their widows were being neglected because, verse 1, their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, some say perhaps there are cultural distinctions and cultural issues. That's probably not what's going on. It's probably just the reality of deficiency, the reality that they have insufficient help, insufficient aid to help these Greek-speaking uh, widows. And so there is a problem and there is a need and that need needs to be remedied. Even the first church had its issues uh, in it. Even the first church had problems that it had to deal with. And thanks be to God, he provides according uh, to his purpose and according to his plan. And so there's this daily distribution. There is daily need with respect to these widows. And so we see the remedy to that problem in verses, really the rest of verses 2 through 7, the rest of the first point, but especially in verses 2 through 4. And so we see this church meeting that takes place. So the apostles, verse 2, then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples. So they call a meeting. Now remember, we distinguish between the officers of the universal church, apostles, prophets and possibly evangelists, but they're kind of an in-between, uh, but especially apostles and prophets. They were officers of the universal church. They had authority over every church being the apostles. But the lower, not the lower, but the local church offices, the higher uh, offices encompassed that. So the apostles were functioning uh, as the elders in the church in Jerusalem. And so they have a task. They have a purpose that they must engage in. 
There's a lot of instruction here about deacons, but there's a lot of instruction here about what a pastor is supposed to be. And it helps us with respect to the expectations about what a pastor is supposed to be. Sometimes the people of God have very high expectations about what the pastor is supposed to be, but also what the deacon is supposed to be. Brethren, I love you, but pastors are not your built-in best friend. Pastors are not your personal life coach. Pastors are not, again, your social calendar planner. If you want to have people over, pick up that thing called a phone, look in our directory, and just invite people over. I like to invite people over as well. That's a good thing. But the point is that that's not my job. That's not my purpose. And we see their purpose here. We see the purpose of a deacon and the purpose of an elder as well. He's not belittling tables, but he's highlighting the focus. He's highlighting the task. We have to know our task. We have to know what it is, and we have to hold fast to that very thing against the pull of what everybody else thinks you ought to be doing. So they summon, they have this meeting. They have this meeting between the officers and the members, those who are joined to the Church of Christ. The language of numbering is technical. Membership is biblical. The implication of excommunicating someone implies that you have to be brought in in the first place. Usually with our church, you say to me, I want to be a member. And I say, great, let's meet and we'll talk and we'll see if you're allowed to be in our church. And uh, you'll see if you really want to be part of our church or not. But with respect to membership, uh, our confession says we don't require a subscription to every jot and tittle. Uh, we want people to be part of the bride of Christ. Officers must, deacons must subscribe uh, fully to our confession. But membership is a biblical concept. I do think in Matthew 28, go and enroll as disciples. And certainly we see the disciples who have been enrolled are made up of the church of Christ. We really do see Matthew 28 being fulfilled uh, here in Acts chapter 6. So they have this meeting, they have this church meeting, and the apostles say we can only do so much. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The pastor, the, uh, the uh, apostles, they have their task as far as tables, that is going to be someone else's task. That is going to be the deacon's task. And one way to describe what a deacon does are two, is two Bs, business and benevolence. They take care of the business of the church, and they take care of the benevolence of the church. They take care of the funds of the church and how to distribute those funds properly. So don't ask me about money. Don't ask me about the finance. I know the overarching financial situation, that's fine, but I don't know who gives. I don't want to know who gives. I don't want to have any inkling about knowing who or what people give. And I'm thankful that the deacons do that very thing. So if you have a financial question, a business-related question, talk to them. And if you come to me asking a business-related question, I'll just say, go talk to the deacons anyway. So let's just cut out the middleman. Just go straight to the deacons with that. And it is probably the case as well with tables. Uh, the word is a bit of a play on words. Certainly table service, certainly caring for those in need, but also probably includes accounting procedures as well. So business and benevolence is the function and purpose of a deacon. So it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve 
tables. But then notice we see the process by which they are chosen. And we follow this for the most part to a T. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The church, the members, they must examine. Now, as far as our church goes as well, yes, elders, you bring it to the elders and you bring it before them, but the members need to be paying attention. We are what's called a congregational church. We have congregational polity. That does not mean 50% rule or 51% rule. I, it's more of like a constitutional republic. I'm voted in to be your elder, and I can then make decisions as your elder. I don't have to ask you questions about what songs we sing or what books we go through. I decide that very thing. Same thing is true with the deacons. They can make financial decisions. They can make decisions. They don't have to ask all the time, hey, we have to, we have, to have a vote on this. If it's a big thing, yes, uh, but for the most part, they can just make decisions. They have been voted in, but the church votes them in. The church appoints them in. And certainly we see this language of voting, if you don't agree with me, but 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I think, highlights very clearly the vote by way of majority. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, we see that there was one who was disciplined, probably the guy from 1 Corinthians 5. But then we see he's forgiven here in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. And he says, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority... The implication is there was a vote with respect to the man. Inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So clearly the situation required some vote. It required perhaps some sort of censure, perhaps some sort of discipline, but now the man has repented, and now he can come back. But the thing there to see is it was by way of a vote. And so the members need to be paying attention. It's not just me, but the members need to be paying attention as well with respect to who can be an officer in the church of Christ. Seek out from among you seven men. Notice we see three qualifications here. Now we see a, a longer list in 1 Timothy 3, but we see first of all, he must be of good reputation. Why? Because he's going to be handling money. He's going to be dealing with some delicate situations, and he needs to be one of good reputation to be trusted with the finances of the Church of Christ. He must also be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The implication here is he must be a mature Christian. He must be one who is above reproach, not perfect, but a mature Christian. That's why even with respect to elders, Novices do not get to be elders. Novices do not get to be deacons. Novices must just come to church, sit down, pay attention. I know that's hard for young guys. They just want to get in and serve right away, which is great. But just come and sit and just chill out for enough period of time to grow into maturity. So they must be full of the Holy Spirit, again, and wisdom, because... Uh, they have to deal with difficult situations. Not just money, but in 1 Timothy 5, we see qualifications for widows. Who receives the funds? 
Brethren, the church of Christ is meant to be generous. We meant to, we're meant to be gracious. But the church of Christ is not a handout, is it? See, they have to distinguish between who is proper with respect or who can properly receive funds as far as widows go. That requires asking some very tough questions. Think about that benevolent side of things for a moment. Someone is struggling. They need some help. We want people to be able to come to the church and ask for help. But then, depending on the situation, the deacons might have to ask some very tough questions. It's a job I, don't, <laughs> I would not want. It's a job that's very hard. And so, thanks be to God for the men that do that, and we ought to appreciate that men who are willing to do that. So, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. But we... The, elder, or the elders or apostles will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What the pastor's job is and what the deacon's service is. And we shouldn't go above and beyond that very thing or those very um, tasks. So word, ministry, prayer, that is what the pastor does. That is my main job. If I'm preaching the word of God, that is my main task. That is what I am primarily called to. And, as, and prayer, continually in prayer uh, as well. And the uh, deacon's business and benevolence. So there's this need. Here's who they're looking for. The church is involved, clearly. And then we see the appointment of certain men. The church agrees to do this. Again, the powers in the local church. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. It pleased them. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. The significance seems to be these men are Greek speakers. Why? Because Greek speakers need help. Greek widows need some help. And so Stephen is full of wisdom. He is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We're going to see a little bit more about Stephen in just a moment. Philip, we know, not the apostle, but Philip the evangelist. He comes back in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, so he's not just a deacon, but he's an evangelist as well. And certainly we see that Stephen also does some teaching as well, but his primary, primary uh, office is that of a deacon. All the rest we don't know much about, and it teaches us that uh, most of the time in the Christian ministry, nobody will know who you are. In the grand scheme of the Church of Christ, nobody will know who you are. Thanks be to God for local churches, and so we ought to appreciate uh, the men that we have and appreciate uh, the men that serve and the men that are willing to serve without being seen by anybody. And so we don't know much about these men, uh, but they are called and appointed as deacons at the church in Jerusalem. Certainly that one Nicholas is a proselyte. He goes from a Gentile to being a Jew uh, and now to being a Christian. And the other significant thing is Antioch would be the first church among the Gentiles. Uh, so a little bit of foreshadowing going on here as far as the expansion of the church goes. So these men are set apart, are chosen. Uh, verse 6, they, whom they set before the apostles... And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Uh, certainly there are connections with Joshua being set apart. We see that expansion 
under the old covenant with Joshua. These men are an answer to prayer like Joshua was, and so they lay hands upon them. Timothy need to remember his laying on of hands or the laying on of hands that he received. Uh, it's a sign that God is with them, a sign of, of approval. It's a sign that they have been set apart by the church of Christ and by Christ himself by way of the church of Christ. And so the church advances not just in number, but also grows by way of officers. And we see the result in verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So even the priests, 18,000 of the priesthood served throughout the year, so that even some priests, they believed in Christ as well as the word of God continues to spread. That's key, isn't it? That is evangelism. The word of God continues to spread, and we see the church multiply. We see the church grow. And just by way of an aside, although it's not really an aside, this definitely alludes back to Exodus chapter 1. If you're going through the McShane calendar, you would have read Exodus chapter 1 today. And what happens in Exodus chapter 1? The people of Israel, they multiply and grow exceedingly. Same language. If you compare the Greek New Testament and the Greek Old Testament, it is the same language. It's like Luke is trying to tell us something about the church of Christ, how the church of Christ is the new Israel. And there's going to be a lot of connections further that we're going to see uh, in the latter part of Acts chapter Six. So there is that old and new Exodus connection, the fulfillment that comes in Christ Jesus, who is the true Israel, and the church then in him as the body is the new Israel. So same language, just as they grew uh, in Exodus 1, and then they, had, they were persecuted as well, and they continued to grow. Same thing is true in Acts chapter 6. And so one thing I think we can take away as we apply it to the diaconate and apply it to service is the blessing of serving God in this way. Those who serve as deacons ought to be encouraged. And one of the things that Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.13 is he prays that their faith would be enlarged. That is a result of men who serve faithfully, that God will enlarge and embolden their faith. Remember, the diaconate uh, is a service ministry. There, uh, it is not a paid ministry. They are meant to be assistants and to help and aid the elders. And so the deacons need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged uh, by the, the voting of the church to be reminded of that, but also be encouraged as they continue on uh, in their service. They are needed to help and assist the elders for the benefit of the church. So they need to be encouraged. But when we see men brought in, the church needs to be encouraged, right? Right. <laughs> Other men to come and help in this way, to come and serve in this office, we ought to be encouraged by what we see and what we hear and the unity of the church with respect to these men who've been brought in. So it's an encouragement to them. It's a blessing to them. It's a blessing for us. It's an encouragement for us all that God provides to, uh, for his church. That's one way we know that Christ is at the right hand, right? He provides for his church. If you don't believe me, Ephesians 4 says that very thing. After he led captivity captive, what does he do? He gives gifts to men. And what are those gifts to men? They're men. 
I mean, specifically in that instance, it's apostles, the prophets, it's teachers, it's uh, shepherds, it's pastors, but certainly deacons are gifts as well. They are given by Christ Jesus. And thankfully, we can know that Christ is still working by adding in this way. Now, does it mean that you can only be a deacon to serve? No. You can show up. That is service to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider one another by loving one another, by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. That is how we serve God by way of worship. Just calling people, just talking to people, just getting to know people. That is in many ways service to our God. Not everybody has to have an official title to serve in the church of Christ. If they do, they'll be recognized. The church will recognize that very thing. But all of God's people can pray. We have prayer at 930 every Sunday morning, by the way. All of God's people can pray. They can pray on their own. They can, you know, they can get together. All those things are great and good. One does not have to be a deacon uh, to serve our Christ. So we all, especially with the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, we all ought to be doing those things, right? We all ought to be hospitable. We all ought to be not quarrelsome. We all ought to be gracious. We all ought to be all of those very things that we see in 1 Timothy 3. So it is a blessing when God adds to his church by way of deacons. So that's the appointment of deacons in verses 1 through 7. Let's then look secondly at the arrest of Stephen in verses 8 through 15. Now the reason I'm including this here, not to say that pettiness or thanklessness in the church is the same as the persecution that Stephen faces. I'm in no way saying that, but there is a good application by way of the fact that being in the ministry is a very thankless job, being whether it's a pastor or a deacon, and it requires and teaches us and reminds us all that we must be faithful. It also teaches us that just because someone becomes an officer in the church of Christ, it doesn't mean life is always going to be hunky-dory. It doesn't mean life is going to be wonderful. In fact, that does not happen with Stephen. We see that persecution comes his way. And so we do see his wisdom and authority, though, in verses 8 through 10. So verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power. We already know that from his appointment in verse 3. He's already doing what he should be doing. He's already was a faithful man. One thing to highlight there is that uh, with respect to the diaconate and the, the ministry is the testing ground is the home. The testing ground is one's life. The testing ground is the church and, uh, and church life. One doesn't say, I want to be a deacon, so let me try practicing by being a deacon. That's not how it works. One must be a deacon and function like a deacon and act like a de deacon, even if I said to them, hey, you're not going to be a deacon. And if they still do it anyway, that guy should probably be a deacon. Same thing is true with eldership. It's not as though, let's try it. No, there needs to be some testing that we see in the home. And you can hear, especially with the teaching uh, office, you can hear the way they talk. You can hear the way they pray. You can hear those things. But it's not as though I want to be in the office uh, and then let me try it. See, it. No, it's there is time tested. There is the home. There is the church. There are all those things. A man full of faith and power before he even was uh, in the ministry. But we see that when he's in it, 
He still is full of faith and power. God is just affirming him in that. We see that he's just affirming him in these things. And the reason we do it in that way as well, it's almost as if the vote then is automatic. It's like, duh, yeah, that guy's been serving for years, so no problems. We're going to move right that way. And that, thanks be to God, that was the case with all of our deacons. It was like, no brainer, no problem, boom, there they are. Probably didn't even have to say anything. We probably could have waited one month and everything would have been fine. But that's how we do things here because they're already doing the thing anyway. They're already engaging in the office really anyway without being in that office. So Stephen, filled with faith and power, and we see this in action as he refutes the Jews. We see he does great signs and wonders among the people. I do believe there was a time for signs and wonders. I don't believe that time is anymore. But signs and wonders were to demonstrate uh, that Christ is on the throne, that Christ is reigning, that the Messianic age has come. And it was also before we had the inscripturated word of God in full, the uh, signs and wonders affirmed what is said. And so signs and wonders accompany the word here. And as we're going to see, just because there's signs and wonders, it doesn't mean that people believe it, right? We're going to see here that the Jews reject Stephen, even though he does signs and wonders. It tells us that the greatest miracle needed is a change of heart. You have to have that change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit to see the battered, bloodied, and bruised Savior and to look to him by faith. It doesn't matter if someone sees someone rise from the dead or a miraculous thing happens, you must believe upon Jesus Christ. And we certainly see that here that these Jews, seeing the signs of wonders, don't believe upon Christ. And so, signs and wonders, we saw that uh, uh, with Jesus, as Peter recounts that in Acts 2. We see that with the apostles in Acts 5. We see with Moses in Acts 7, verse 36. So another allusion back there to the Exodus that we see uh, here in verse 8. And so the problem arises, this case, an external problem, disputes from Jews. So verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freed men, probably prisoners under General Pompey, and then they were released. So now they're called the freed men. And so they are also Greek speakers, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. And here they come. They are disputing with Stephen. We don't see the content, but it's probably over Jesus and the place of Judaism. We see that perhaps uh, indicated further by what they say concerning Stephen in the following verses. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that he is proven to be the Messiah and yet Israel, ethnic Israel, continues to reject. There are many Jews who have believed, but there are many who have rejected and continue to reject. So much so, Acts 7 is driving to judgment. With all that Stephen does, he's going to talk about how Jesus is the true tabernacle, how Jesus is the true Israel. He drives to the point where he says, you have always been a stiff-necked people, Israel, that's what he says. That is his main point. That then leads to him being stoned. So judgment very much is in view upon those who do not believe in Christ, even if they are Jews. And so they resist, verse 10, and they, or, uh, they resist him, but they're not able to resist what he was saying, verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which 
he spoke. The Holy Spirit is working. This is probably a fulfillment of Luke 12, where Jesus says, I will give you, the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say in light of what's going on, in light of having to give an answer uh, for Christ. And so he, they're not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. He is speaking eloquently. He's speaking spiritually. He's speaking in a way that they cannot refute. Here is the Messiah. Here is who he is. And the Jews have nothing to say. So what happens when you can't beat someone in an argument? You just lie, right? That's usually a good response from a functioning adult, right? Just lie and put him on trial and bring him before the elders. That's a good response, right? That's exactly what they do. That's exactly what happens here. Rather than just letting things go, they say in verse 11, we see, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They're stirring up the people against him. Persecution shifts from the leaders to the people engaging in this. And so we again see they don't believe despite all the signs and wonders, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They're bringing up these false statements. Remember, Judaism believed what they had was the truth. So the meaning of Moses and God here probably refers to the law as the foundation for life and the temple as the foundation for worship. We have Moses, we have this temple. And what had happened for Israel at this time is they're making those things idols. The temple was a good thing, right? In the time of Israel. But we see they're making it an idol. The law, the old covenant was a good thing as far as Israel goes. But they're making it an idol now that the fulfillment has come in Christ Jesus. When the true temple has come, when the true Moses has come, they reject him, but hold fast to that physical structure. That is idolatry. And so they bring these false witnesses, verse 13. They set up many, just like our Lord. There were false witnesses against him in Mark chapter 14, and all with respect to the temple. Remember, Jesus said, I would destroy it and build it up in three days. I mean, he was talking about his body, right? He was talking about how he is the temple. We have no need for a physical structure anymore. We have the temple in Christ Jesus. And the irony is, Jews who claim to be staunch law keepers, they are breaking that ninth commandment. This is where we see how important the ninth commandment is in the Greco-Roman world. They didn't have forensics. They didn't have CCTV when it comes to figuring out a situation. It was always based upon word of mouth. That's why false witness has life or death implications for people. And we see that here with Stephen. So they lie. They, they bring this false witness against him. And they say in verse 13, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Against this holy place and the law. They say, view him as speaking against their two pillars, the temple and the law, which in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong. But if you only see the shadow and not the substance, they become idolatrous. Same thing is true in Colossians, right? Jesus is the substance of what the old pointed to. And now that he has come, you need to get rid of those old things. 
You need to look to Jesus Christ. He is where life is. He is how we have access to God. His sacrifice is sufficient. And so they speak these, speak these blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. One writer says, he's pried loose, they pry loose from the temple and expand further as it is not bound by the physical temple. There is a Christian difference. We can dwell with God wherever because Christ is the temple. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. Christ is the temple. And thankfully, the church is then called what in 1 Corinthians? The temple. The church is called what in Ephesians 2? The temple built upon the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, who is Christ Jesus. If we are Christ, our bodies are what? A temple of the Holy Spirit, that we dwell with God Almighty through the one who is the temple. We don't need a physical temple. We don't need the old covenant. We have the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And the ethnic Jews here were holding fast to that which was old, that which is obsolete, rather than that which is new and far better. Whole point of the book of Hebrews, right? The old is obsolete, but there is new. There is a new covenant that's built on better promises that comes from a better mediator, namely Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what Stephen was saying is absolutely true, but these Jews do not believe it. And if you're an unbeliever here today, will you believe it? Will you believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again? Or is there something else that is an idol to you? Is there something else that is your focus in life? Confess that sin, confess that idol, and believe upon Jesus Christ. It's not the physical temple. It's not law-keeping. It is Christ. Christ who kept the law in its perfection. Christ who died as that perfect sacrifice. Christ who is raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. If you believe upon him, you will be saved. So if an unbeliever, flee to Christ. We see that uh, sinners are saved and sinners are willing to die for this Savior. Why? Because the Savior died for them. Do you have such a friend as he? Do you have such a Christ as he? The one who died for his people, bore the wrath of God in the place of his people that his people might have life. Believe upon him and you shall be saved. And then verse 15. Even though Stephen has all these false witnesses against him, we see that he has the divine witness who affirms him. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. The irony is, who has divine favor here? It's not the Jews, it's Stephen. He has the face of an angel. Again, another allusion probably to Moses, the one who's dwelling with God and the one who uh, has God with him. It is Stephen, it is not these Jews. 
And later on in Acts chapter 7, when we see Stephen stoning, one of my favorite pictures in all of scripture is when Stephen dies. I know that's a little weird, but just hear me out just for a second. You see, he looks up, Stephen, when he's about to die, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand. Normally, Jesus is sitting, right? So why is he standing? Well, the idea of witness is very important when we understand that. It's not just that he's standing to receive Stephen in, although certainly he's going to do that. He is standing as the witness. He is standing as the one who is bearing witness at the right hand of God the Father as Stephen is facing false witnesses here. Even though Stephen faces persecution, he faces false witnesses, there is one who is at the right hand of God, of God the Father Almighty who is bearing witness on his behalf. Christ affirms him. Christ is with him. And as he stands on at that council, Christ is with him as he speaks about Christ from the Old Testament and as Christ receives him into heaven. There is divine vindication. There is divine vindication for Stephen even as he dies, even as he is the first martyr, God has affirmed him. Christ has died for him, and Christ bears witness. All who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, as we close, I just want to highlight a couple of charges and a couple of encouragements for our brother Bill and for the Church of Christ uh, as we are about to bring him in, him, and I'll lay hands on him very soon. But false allegations, mighty God, we see that all in Acts chapter 6. But the thing that it teaches us here is the importance of faithfulness and sacrifice as it pertains to the office of a deacon. And so my charge for Bill is quite simple. Just be faithful. Be faithful in your life. Be faithful in the business and benevolence of the church. Howie and Drew, be faithful. <laughs> That's also a charge for you as well. Church of Christ, be faithful as well. But with respect to what God has called you to do, just do what you are supposed to do. That is just such sound advice I heard from Pastor Butler, and it's hopefully sound advice for you. When things are hard, be faithful. When things are hard and you're tired, come to church. When things are happy, come to church. Just be faithful. Be dependable. Trust in God. Don't have, just be faithful in what God has called you to do. That is what God calls us all to do, to be faithful where he has us. And if you're going to be a deacon, be faithful in the business and benevolence of the church of Christ. And it's important to keep your task in mind when everybody might be pulling you into a different direction. Just be faithful, business and benevolence, to serve the church of Christ in this way. And the other thing with respect to the office of deacon, Bill, is to be willing to sacrifice. Now, you're already willing to sacrifice by being a deacon. But what I mean by that is the being in the ministry is a thankless job. Being in the ministry is going to be, have a lot of discouragements from the people of God, unfortunately. The people of God can just be petty. It's unfortunate, but it just is the reality of life. And so just be willing to fall on your sword. The reality is nobody's going to know that you fall on your sword. You just have to fall on your sword. And so be faithful, be willing to sacrifice in the task that God has called you to do in the church of Christ. So be faithful, be willing to sacrifice. As far as the church of Christ goes, 
Certainly be thankful to God, but encourage your deacons. Encourage them. They are not paid. Everything they do is volunteer. Make sure you thank them for doing the difficult task of being a deacon in the Church of Christ. Having to have hard conversations, having to know what to do with the generosity of the people of God, how to use those finances well. They need your help. So please encourage them. Please thank them. Please remember them in prayer. They certainly need it. And for the Church of Christ, the opposite, don't discourage them. Know their task, have proper expectations of what they should be, and please do not exceed that. Because that is where it can be very, very tiring for a minister or for a deacon to be stretched beyond what God has called them to do. So thanks be to God for adding to our church in this way. Thanks be to Christ, who's at the right hand of God the Father. He is the head of the church, and he is building his church. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the advancement of your kingdom. Even despite persecution, even despite trying circumstances, we see that truly the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and that you are pleased to advance your kingdom in ways uh, we do not always uh, fathom, in ways that cause us to be so surprised, yet cause us to worship you and praise you and recognize that only you could do such things. We're also thankful for the ordinary means that you use and the ways in which you work in your church, even by way of observation, as your church is called to observe men and your church is called to think about men to, be, to serve in the two offices of Christ. And we're thankful for the mind of Christ by way of the vote, by way of voting, by way of um, thinking through these things and having the same mind together uh, as we bring Bill in. So we pray that you would encourage Bill, that you would uplift Bill, uh, that you would help him as he serves alongside Drew and Howie. We pray that they would be faithful, that they would be uh, encouraged, that you'd help me to be faithful as well as I uh, do my task. We do pray that you'd raise up more men to serve in the office of deacon, but also in the office of elder as well. And may these times, the times of bringing Drew and Howie in and the times of bringing uh, Bill in, encourage us that you will uh, provide for us. And so be with us today, be with all of us today. Please encourage our hearts today, we pray in the name of Christ.